4: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
6: This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show. And this next one, well, it's about something... So many of us do, every day, Americans drink about 400 million cups of coffee. The drink itself represents 75% of our yearly caffeine consumption. So needless to say, this drink is important to us. It's also important to the U.S. military and today, Richard Muniz, our regular contributor and listener, shares an entertaining story on the subject. Take it away, Richard. There's
2: an old expression that goes that an army travels on its belly. Well, if that's true, then coffee is the lubrication that runs that army. And if you've been in the military before, you know this is very important. Coffee just makes it so much easier. I know when we deployed to the Gulf, for instance, we took cooking utensils. The only time we actually used those cooking utensils was once when we made some french fries out of some potatoes we found. But the one thing that got used constantly was the coffee pot. Now, we didn't take coffee with us, but the first time anybody went to one of the local Arab towns like that, guess what they bought? Coffee. And we'd make coffee every morning we got up. Some people didn't want to sit there and wait for it, so what they just did was they heat up their water in their uh, little canteen cups, put the instant coffee from the MRE packets in there, mix a little bit of uh, hot chocolate, a little bit of creamy sugar, hey, no, good coffee. Coffee has been a part of every armed forces that I know of. If you're a fan of the movie Master and Commander, there's a scene in there where Aubrey's uh, cabin boy comes up and says, there's no more coffee, and Aubrey says, fine, we'll drink tea. Well, that just shows you how important it has been. Now, even during the Civil War, it was very important. Soldiers would ride home, and they'd tell about the battlefield experiences and stuff like that, but the word coffee was used more than anything else. One soldier wrote home and he was complaining about lack of uh, food, lack of morale, lack of this, lack of that. But he specifically spelled out coffee. In fact, he said, how can you possibly soldier without coffee? The Confederacy didn't have a lot of coffee to have. What they used to do was they would go out and they would trade with Union soldiers. When there was no fighting going on So like that, they would meet in a, I guess a neutral zone, if you want to call it that, and they would trade. They would trade tobacco, which they had plenty of for coffee. The average Union soldier got well over 30 pounds of coffee a year as his personal ration. So they had they, they coffee was something the Union got. All the way through World War I, coffee. World War II, coffee. In fact, some of the most iconic images that came out of World War II concerned coffee. Here was a GI, this little tin cup there, and he's toasting the folks back home with a hot cup of coffee. Very important. Coffee has played a very important part for all of us. A friend of mine tells me a story. He was in the Navy, not the Army. And now I need to qualify something here. I don't know how true this story is. I know nothing about ships. I know nothing about the uh, traditions on ships. And he tells me this story. For all I know, maybe he stole it from somebody else. Maybe he hallucinated. I don't know, but it's such a cool story. I'm going to tell it to you anyway. He went through uh, basic, he went through A school and all that stuff, and he did really, really well. And they said, hey, you did so well, we're going to give you your choice of assignments. Well, here's a Trekkie, like Star Trek, and if you can't have Jim Kirk's Enterprise or John Luke Picard's Enterprise, you settle for the one you got. In this case, the nuclear aircraft carrier Enterprise we have today. He wants the bridge of the Enterprise. Thinking there'll be a fat chance he ever gets it, well, guess what? He got it. Well, apparently, there was a tradition on the bridge of the Enterprise. And like I said, I've never tried to check this out. So, you know, if there is, great. If there isn't, forgive me. What happens on the Enterprise is this. The lowest rank in EM on the bridge makes the coffee. Okay, that's pretty cool. Okay, so he gets up there, and he decides, I am going to make the best cup of coffee the captain's ever had. And he's got, you know visions of promotions dancing in his head or whatever the case may be, but he wants to make sure the captain never, ever forgets him. So he goes out and he studies how to make coffee. And he goes to libraries, reading every book he can find, every article, stuff like that. He goes to baristas who make coffee for a living and learns their their secrets and whatnot. By the time he's finished, the only two entities in the entire universe that know more about making coffee than him is God and the guy in the Folgers commercial. So he goes out there, and his first day on the bridge, he makes the coffee. The smell of coffee weapons into the bridge, I mean, it's phenomenal coffee. It smells, it smells great. Okay, the other tradition they had on the bridge was no one gets their cup until the captain gets his. Cool tradition. Well, he's sitting there waiting for the captain and all that stuff, because you know, he's just sitting there going, oh yeah, yeah, the captain's gonna take it, and he's gonna look at it, and he's gonna sit back in that chair and go, oh yeah, this is a cup of coffee. Well, Captain comes up. Captain on the bridge. You know, all that stuff. Captain comes up. He's talking to everybody. pours his cup of coffee and sits down in his chair. And he's there talking. He's got his reports in front of him. Puts his his, uh, cup of coffee there on on his armchair. And he's reading the reports, talking, stuff like that. And then he reaches over. Here's the moment of truth. Picks up the coffee mug. And takes a sip of it. And he's sitting there expecting the captain to smile. But that's not what happened. captain spews this coffee all over a master chief that's standing there, drops the cup of coffee like it was a snake, stands up and scans the bridge, and he says his sister's eyes locked on him and said, what in the hell is wrong with you? Apparently there's two types of uh, water spigots on the ship. There's fresh water, which is what you drink, and then there's seawater, which you use for other purposes. He didn't know the difference. When it came time for promotion time, guess what? They didn't forget him either.
6: And great job, as always, to Monty Montgomery for producing that piece. And thanks to Richard Muniz for his story, stories about coffee and coffee in the military, particularly. And again, if you have stories to share with us, we love hearing from listeners. And we've got a bunch of great listener contributions. Go to ouramericanstories.com Richard Munez's story, coffee in the military, here on Our American Story. Folks, if you love the great American stories we tell and love America like we do, we're asking you to become a part of the Our American Stories family. If you agree that America is a good and great country, please make a donation. A monthly gift of $17.76 is fast becoming a favorite option for supporters. Go to OurAmericanStories.com now and go to the donate button and help us keep the great American stories coming. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And we continue here with Our American Stories. And now Matt Parker, a comedian and mathematician from Australia, tells the story of the time Michael Larson surprisingly beat the game show Press Your Luck. Here's Matt.
5: The best TV game shows sit at the intersection of skill And luck. And in the 1980s, there was one such game show called Press Your Luck. The skill component came from asking the contestants trivia questions. But then the luck came in via the big board. This is how prizes were dished out after a contestant had demonstrated their skill answering a trivia question. It was a massive screen with 18 boxes detailing different cash amounts or physical prizes and a cartoon character known as a Whammy. The highlight on the board would rapidly flip between the different boxes in an apparently random order. The players would then win the content of whichever box was selected when they hit their buzzer, but if they landed on a whammy, the player would lose all the prizes they had accumulated so far.
7: Okay,
5: I want a trip. Let's go. Please, time. Okay, stop! Stop! Oh. never linger on one box long enough for the player to see what it was, react, and then hit their buzzer. And because the movement was unpredictable, it was theoretically impossible for the player to anticipate which box was going to be selected. So they were picking at random. And most players would win a few prizes before retiring for that round. Other players, of course, would press their luck and get whammied. I mean, that was the idea in theory. Michael Larson was an ice cream truck driver from Ohio and they decided to see just how random the big board really was. So they taped some shows when it first started airing in 1983 and they poured over the footage trying to crack if there were any underlying patterns. And sure enough, they noticed that the board only had five Predetermined cycles. They just went through them so fast that they looked random. So Michael set about memorizing those five cycles, working out exactly when the optimum point to buzz in for each one would be, and then they flew out to Los Angeles and unbelievably managed to get themselves on the show as a contestant. <laughs> The game starts normally enough. Michael was competing against Ed, a Baptist minister, and Janie, a dental assistant. Michael answers enough trivia questions correctly to earn some spins on the big board, and on his first go, he hits a whammy. By the start of the second round, Michael is in last... Lace, but his trivia knowledge has just earned him seven more spins on the big board. This time, he does not hit a whammy. Oh, no. He lands on $1,250. dollars
6: Hey, no whammies, no whammies. Come on, big bucks. I need lots of money. Come on. Go. Stop. Stop
1: Woo! at $1,250. One spin left. $1,250,
5: Michael. And then on the next spin... again.
1: Stop! Stop at
3: $1,250 again.
5: And then $4,000, $5,000, $1,000, a holiday, $4,000, and so on. As most of the prizes also come with a free spin, his reign on the big board seems to be everlasting. At first, the host, Peter Tamarkin, goes through his normal patter, waiting for Michael to hit a whammy. But Michael doesn't. In a freak of probability, Michael keeps selecting prize after prize. It is amazing to watch the range of emotions the host goes through. Initially, he's excited. Something unlikely is happening. But soon, he's trying to work out what on earth is going on while still maintaining his jovial game show host persona.
6: Go, go. Has-
1: I- what? I don't care. So whatever. Here we go. Stop! Stop it,
5: Apparently, behind the scenes, chaos was breaking out as show executives and channel directors were trying to work out was Michael cheating? How how was this happening? To their eyes, Michael seemed to be celebrating too soon. He was pleased when he buzzed in in less time than he conceivably could have been reading the prize that he had won. Somehow he already knew when to press the buzzer and which square he wanted to stop on. Now of course all of this could have been avoided if the game show Big Board was actually random then Michael wouldn't have been able to pore over the footage on VHS and memorize the five different cycles. But the designers of the Pressure lock system had hard-coded set cycles instead of making it truly random, because being random is very difficult. There's not even really a case of it being difficult for computers to do something randomly. It's pretty much impossible. No computer can be random unaided. Computers are built to follow instructions precisely. Processors are built to predictably do the correct thing every time. Making a computer do something unexpected is a very difficult feat. You can't have a line of programming code that says do something truly random without also having a specialized component attached to the computer to provide the randomness. The extreme version of this is to build a 2 meter high motorized conveyor belt that dips into a bucket of about 200 dice and lifts a random selection of them up past a camera. The computer can then use that camera to look at the dice, detect what numbers have been rolled and use that as a source of randomness. And such a machine, capable of over 1.3 random dice rolls a day, would weigh over a hundred pounds, fill a room with the cacophony of moving motors and rolling dice, and be exactly what Scott Nesson built for his Games by Email website. Scott, you see, runs a website where people can play games by email. Which means he requires about 20,000 dice rolls per day. People who play board games do take their dice rolls very seriously. So he went to all the effort in 2009 to build a machine capable of physically rolling enough dice. He was sure to engineer the diceomatic so it was future-proof with plenty of spare capacity. Hence, the maximum output of over 1.3 million rolls per day. Scott currently has about a million unused dice rolls saved on his server, and the diceomatic fires up for an hour or two each day to top off the randomness reservoir, filling his house in Texas with the thundering sound of hundreds of dice rolling at once. However, the makers of Press Your Luck did not use that, and it meant that Michael Larson was able to memorise the patterns, and they ended up winning an unprecedented $110,237 on the game show, about eight times more than the average winner. He had such an extended winning streak that the normally fast turnover game show had to split his appearance across two separate episodes. And even though they did look into if he was somehow cheating or breaking the rules, eventually Michael Larson did get all of his prize money. He managed to show that it was actually less effort than to memorize the apparently random sequences than it was to memorize the trivia which the show was meant to be testing. Michael was able to take a game show which was supposed to be skill and luck and turn it entirely into a very specific, different type of
6: skill. And a great job by Robbie digging up that story, and it's just a delight. And a special thanks also to Matt Parker, a comedian and mathematician from Australia. Matt's book, Humble Pie, P.I. Pick it up at Amazon.com and the usual suspects. Michael Larson's story of how he beat the game show, Press Your Luck, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and being that it's that time of the year, St. Patrick's Day, we figured we'd give you the story behind the story, which is what we love to do here on Our American Stories. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of St. Patrick.
7: RPC Hansen wrote in his book about St. Patrick that the tragedy with all the myths and legends, such as Patrick driving all the snakes out of Ireland, His association with using shamrock to explain the Trinity, and the preconception that he's Irish, is that these actually hide the truth. What we are about to do is get rid of the myths and the legends and go to the primary source, the words of Patrick himself. In fact, his fifth century writings and letters known as the Confession are one of the earliest surviving documents in Irish history. Here's Dr. Tim Campbell, director of the St. Patrick's Centre in Downpatrick, Ireland.
8: Ego patricius, peccator Rusicismus, I, Patrick, a sinner, least faithful of many. Those are the words that begin the history of Ireland.
7: Patrick was born into a well-off family and lived in a country estate on the western coast of what was Roman-occupied Britain in the very last days of the Roman Empire. As Roman legions abandoned Britain in order to protect themselves in other regions of the Roman Empire, order and authority fell into disarray and Britain's west coast became vulnerable to frequent plundering by Irish slave raiders. Patrick was a teenager living a very comfortable life as the son of a government official and church cleric, though he himself had very little interest in anything pertaining to his father's faith. One day, Irish raiders captured the 16-year-old Patrick along with several thousand men, women, and children from the surrounding countryside, packed them tightly into holds of waiting ships, and took them to Ireland, a wild and savage place beyond the Roman reach. Patrick was sold as a slave and was made a shepherd for a very harsh master. Patrick hated the Irish, and this hatred fueled his will to live he vowed one day to repay them for their cruelty. Here's Dr. Campbell, Elva Johnston, professor of history at University College Dublin, Patrick's biographer, Thomas O'Loughlin, and father, Billy Swan.
8: Celtic people did not work with slaves the same way that the Romans did. They treated their slaves pretty badly, like cattle, and would have worked you until you died.
9: Particularly as a non-Irish slave, he would have been at an even greater disadvantage because he wouldn't have been recognised almost as a person. Presumably it is a sort of meant to be slavery for life. He begins to conclude that this has happened because I deserved it, basically, and this happened to shake me out of my complacency and to shake me out of um, a way of life I
3: was living in which God didn't matter for me.
7: Here are the words of Patrick.
3: I tended sheep every day, and I prayed frequently during the day. And more and more the love of God and the fear of Him grew in me, and my faith was increased and my spirit was quickened, so that in a day I prayed up to a hundred times, and almost as many in the night. Indeed, I even remained in the wood and on the mountain to pray. And come hail, rain, or snow, I was up before dawn to pray. The Spirit was fervent in me. Something new is happening, something
9: that hadn't happened before. That personal relationship, that dimension of a personal relationship with God.
7: Patrick's bitterness and loneliness began to melt away as he came to realize God was with him. He tried to recall sermons from church and stories from the Bible, He chided himself for his boyhood lack of interest in God. Although Patrick knew of Jesus Christ, he never cared. But now, as a slave in a strange green distant land, the little he had learned as a boy came flooding back to him. He didn't have a Bible, but he could pray. And as his love for God grew, his hatred for the Irish died. Patrick was held as a slave for six years as he continued to pray every day. Here's the words of Patrick, and Patrick's biographer, Thomas O'Loughlin.
3: It was there, indeed, that one night I heard a voice. Patrick, well have you fasted. Very soon you are to travel to your homeland. Behold, your ship is prepared. (sighs) Took flight, leaving the man I had been bound to for six years. But the ship was not nearby, but maybe 200 miles away, where I had never been and where I knew nobody. The biggest danger is someone says, You're a slave. I'll find
7: out where you come from and I'll take you back and I'll claim a reward. It took him days to walk 200 miles before reaching the seaport. And there, right before him, was a ship getting ready to depart. But the captain, seeing he was a slave, refused to give him passage. Patrick turned to leave, and as he did, he prayed for guidance. Before he ended his prayer, one of the sailors in the back of the ship said, Come, hurry, we shall take you on. Patrick was then asked to pledge himself to the crew through a Celtic tradition that included sucking on their chests.
8: These days we would shake hands, and in those days that was a a way of bonding with each other to show that you would be loyal to them. He didn't want to do that because he was Christian.
7: The sailors gave him a pass and led him on board the ship. They traveled for three days before landing on an unknown desolate port. They traveled on foot for 28 days searching for food as the haggard, half-starved men grew weak. The captain fixed his fiery eyes on Patrick and said, "'Tell me, Christian, you say that your God is great and all-powerful. Why then do you not pray for us? We are suffering from hunger. It is unlikely that we shall ever see a human being again.'" Patrick smiled. "'Be truly converted with all your heart to the Lord my God, because nothing is impossible for him.'" When the men turned around, a herd of pigs crossed the path in front of them. They would feast on Ham for days. Patrick writes that after this, they thanked God mightily, and he became honorable in their eyes. But just days after this miracle, Patrick was once again taken captive and made a slave. On the very first night he was with his captors, He received a divine message telling him he would remain with them for two months. This is exactly what happened. Patrick wrote, The Lord freed me from their hands. Two years passed before Patrick finally made it home to his family in Britain.
4: The Patrick that returned was a very different person from the one who left. He was someone who had encountered God in the darkest part of his day, and who had, as a result of encountering God in a real and living way, uh, become much more comfortable with the idea that God was active and alive and, and to be taken seriously.
7: Then one night, a voice returned to him.
4: I saw in the night the vision of a man whose name was Victor, coming, as it were, from Ireland,
3: With countless letters. And he gave me one of them. And I read the opening words of the letter, which were... The voice of the Irish. And they cried out as with one voice. We ask you, holy boy, come and walk among us once again.
6: And you've been listening to the story of St. Patrick. And of course, obviously, we're telling this story because so many Irish Americans call this country home when we continue more of St. Patrick's story here on Our American Stories.
0: No purchase necessary. Void. were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
4: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment,
1: oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA.
5: He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... <laughs>
4: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare.
6: And we continue with our American stories and the story of St. Patrick. Let's return to Greg Hengler and the rest of this remarkable story.
7: After several years in the monasteries of France, Patrick was ordained a bishop. Patrick told his church, family, and friends he would be returning to Ireland. And they were shocked. Don't you know what they do with slaves who run away? Surely God would not require this from one who has suffered so much already. Settle down here in peace. The church leaders argued he was wasting his time. Those brutal barbarians have no interest in God. Patrick told them, God snatched me from my homeland and parents so that I might know and love him. It is in Ireland that I wish to serve until I die, if the Lord would grant it to me. So Patrick, who was still a fugitive in Ireland, set his feet to walk and heart to share the gospel message to the Irish everywhere, beginning in the year 432. The pre-Christian Druids were a powerful force in 5th century Ireland. These Celtic religious leaders were part of a pagan priesthood and would be rivals to Patrick's ministry. The Druids hated him for leading people away from their idols. They robbed, beat, imprisoned and tortured him. He was enslaved a third time. Twelve times his enemies nearly killed him, but always the Lord rescued him
9: sells his nobility, which I take to be a reference to him selling essentially his inheritance. It's almost like a form of seed funding which will enable him to get to Ireland. I imagine that Patrick's parents had fully expected him to take on the role as maybe the heir of the family.
5: He would have been opting out of any responsibility for running estates etc
7: here's Patrick Alan Harper, Chris Seaton co-author of New Celts and Father Neil Carlin
3: it was not my grace but God who conquered in me and who resisted them all that I might come to the Irish nations to preach the gospel
9: In terms of the challenge of it, it was just awesome. He didn't know what he faced, possible death, um, persecution, more slavery, imprisonment.
4: He established his great stone church on the hilltop. The site is strategically located on one of the main uh, transportation routes in inland Ireland. That makes this an extremely significant and important place from which to conduct your mission and you're conducting your mission in territory which has not been exposed to Christianity before.
10: Patrick's approach seemed to be very much about confronting the spirituality of paganism but not condemning the culture in which it bred. He used what was
4: sacred to the people but gave it a new context, a fuller, richer context, which they were able both to accommodate within their own understanding and see a continuity of what had been dimly perceived in the past through the coming of God into human experience.
10: Patrick did break the mould of the, of the church of that time. Being, in that sense, quite radical and an outsider, uh, I think that, to me, is an authentic pattern that resonates with the New Testament. Think of John the Baptist, think of Jesus, they they were not comfortable within the institutional structures of the church. So much of church leadership was quite locked into an earthly security, a worldly security, uh, whereas what Patrick did was completely counterintuitive to go to one of the more wild and unwelcoming places. Patrick needed an awful lot of conviction in his heart, but he needed a lot of fire in his blood to be able to do what he he did, which was effectively change a nation.
4: I think one of the things that most interests me about Patrick is that he came into what was a situation of social difficulties and considerable conflict with a completely revolutionary message which, yes, he had to use local um, influence to spread, but which transcended, totally transcended the circumstances of the local divisions and disputes. He comes across from, from his writings as, as a
3: very humble man, a man who knew his frailty, talking of himself as, as a great sinner. Like all the saints seem to do. And I often think it's like you come into the sun and you see the dust coming through a, a beautiful window in a building, you didn't see the dust before the sunlight shone through that light. I often think of the saints like that, because you, to you and I, they're not great sinners, but as they came close to the great light and are aware of the great God, they become more and more aware of their sin, and yet more and more aware of God's mercy.
7: Patrick converted thousands to Christianity. He opposed slavers, Irish kings, druids, and most of all, hostility from his fellow Christians. Here again is
8: Dr. Tim Campbell. Tim Campbell. Patrick went AWOL, and we just don't know how that all panned out. He said that he wanted to spend the rest of his life in Ireland because that's what God demanded. Therefore, we got a guess that he never did go back.
7: Patrick died of old age and was buried in Northern Ireland in the year 461 on March 17th, the day we celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Not long after Patrick's death, the Roman Empire fell, and Western Europe drifted into the Middle Ages. But Patrick's work was not in vain.
9: As Christianity established itself, as it became more vibrant, it became known as the Land of Saints and Scholars, and that led in turn to a whole proliferation of Christian missionaries leaving Ireland and flooding continental Europe. Patrick's story began a chain of events that is quite remarkable in the impact that it
8: had. He wore out many more pairs of sandals in death than he did in life. And he's still going. People are still reading his confession and still being interested in Christianity because he wrote his message down.
7: Here again
10: is Chris Seaton. The work of evangelism in Ireland and the establishing of those monastic houses contributed to a strong place of learning, of culture, and definitely, of course, a strong place of of a springboard for evangelism, which, down the line, spawned the re-evangelization of Britain and mainland Europe.
7: To this day, Patrick's works offer hope for religious reconciliation in Ireland. Here's Harry Smith from Belfast, director of the Christian Renewal Centre.
4: Patrick brought a Christianity that was pre-Roman in a sense, you know, therefore he, he predates everything that we would see in this land as being Catholic or Protestant, and therefore in a sense he's an anchor point for us, whenever we're talking about reconciliation in this land, of something of a commonality.
7: In closing, let us hear Patrick's final words.
3: I pray for those who believe in and have reverence for God. Some of them may come upon this writing which Patrick, a sinner, wrote in Ireland. May none of them ever say that whatever little I did or made known to please God was done through ignorance. Instead, you can judge and believe in all truth that it was a gift of God. This is my confession before I die.
7: I'm Greg Hengler, and from all of us here at Our American Stories, have a great St. Patrick's Day.
6: And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. And again, a special thanks to CBN Films for allowing us to access their movie docudrama, I Am Patrick. And we'd also like to thank the folks at Vision Video for giving us access to footage of their film, Patrick. Check out the full documentary and 1900 other titles of uplifting, family-friendly videos at visionvideo.com. And my goodness, he was an entrepreneur of sorts, going into a wild, untamed land with a message that caused him to meet enemies everywhere around him, converting thousands to his faith, but in the end, lots of enemies too. And those final words, my goodness, I pray for those who believe in and have reverence for God. May none of them ever say that what I did to please God was not done in ignorance, but to please him. Beautiful words, a beautiful story, Patrick's story, St. Patrick's story, and by the way that he calls himself a sinner, is something we can all, all of us, believers or not, know that we're all flawed, and what a beautiful story, and what grace he found through his God. A great story, a great Irish story, a great human story, here On our American stories.
5: From
4: BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA.